Hi, everyone, and welcome to Algo First. I'm your host, Jessica Minhas. Today, we are joined by Jordan Wexler. He is the founder of Early Bird and the co-founder of Recovery Through Entrepreneurship. He is on today to talk about passion and purpose. He has amazing, very tactical tips for you on how to find what you're passionate about and how to make something happen with it. I'm so excited for you to hear what he has to say. Welcome to Algo First, and Yay! this is Jordan Wexler. He Hello. is the co-founder of Recovery Through Entrepreneurship, which is a incredible program. He's going to tell you more about that. And then the founder of Early Bird, co-founder? Yep, founder. Founder, the yeah. boss. Well, co-founder. There's two of us. But uh, yes. we. But you're the idea man. I, yeah. It Vision. originates out I of like your story. To, I like to create visions and then try to achieve them. <laughs> so before we get into what those two things are, I always like to ask guests, what does your legacy look like for you? Wow, great question. My legacy, so like the legacy I want to leave or the legacy that it, I've built now? <laughs> I don't know. Ooh. It's the open legacy, for interpretation. I don't believe I really have a legacy right now. So the legacy I'd like to leave is I've always come from a family that, you know, I was extremely lucky and privileged in the, the family that I, I had. And uh, there was always this motivation and kind of baseline of that, you know, you can achieve anything. So, you know, it has its ups and downs in the sense of it created this sense of that, you know, I was supposed to do something with my life and be very, you know, just achieve a level of success. As I got older, I realized that, would, that if that's not defined, it can actually be, it can hinder you a lot because I just always was like, well, I should be up here. Mm, that's a good point. And it created this actually really fascinating sense of inadequacy that I still struggle with all the time. Uh, my father actually did a lot of work in that space. He has a really great TED talk about the uh, what inadequacy is and the feelings around that. Because, you know, I wake up all the time feeling inadequate, like I'm not doing enough, I'm never doing enough. And so it's been a really l real learning process of how do you balance the process of acknowledging what you are doing so you're feeling competent and good and also still striving for more. So my legacy... Yeah, no, I, I truly believe my family, my mom always said, whatever you're given, you should give back. And that's always been stuck in my head. Now, as I'm older and done a lot more work, I see that there's a level of uh, basically how do you position yourself so that that give back can, can really, you know, you can actually truly help people. And so... My legacy would really be that I, when I, when I on my little tombstone, I'd say Jordan was a, was a positive and proactive man <laughs> who helped a lot of people. Helped people by lending that hand and really showing people how to do things so that, you know, the next generation could be empowered, I think is kind of my... You are one of the most positive people <laughs> I've ever met. <laughs> And I'm really curious how you're able to be so positive. But before we jump into that, because that is actually one of my questions mm -hmm. later, because uh, I am just amazed by that. Can you walk us through 
all that you're doing. You're a serial entrepreneur. You've led teams all over the world. You're really young to be leading these international teams. So this is going to be your third business. And you also run this amazing nonprofit that's been around for a really long time. I don't even know where to start with all of the amazing work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Um, So, I mean, I guess really the short story. So my father, Dr. Harry Wexler, he unfortunately passed away two years ago or three years ago now almost. And so he was a big pioneer in the whole criminal justice space and criminal justice reform. So I really grew up in the space of this idea of uh, drug rehabilitation centers. And, you know, I would go visit these places with my dad all the time and really seeing the world of recovery that I thought was just such a incredible, inspiring space. So from, you know, 10 years old, I was just so influenced by that incredible space, the voices in in there that were, you know, all these individuals who had spent a lot of time behind bars and then really, you know, were ready and able to like change their lives and and do something great. And I was just like this 10-year-old, like, oh my God. What this is so cool. I want, that is I want so to write cool a book. that you were so young that you got to be <laughs> yeah, well, I think, exposed to that. So that's actually that one word I think is the most important thing ever. I mean I talk about this all the time in RT, recovery through entrepreneurship, exposure. Exposure, exposure, exposure. If you don't know that something is there, you don't know something exists, you can never do anything about it. So there's so many ways in which the lack of exposure creates this inability to actually make change or to, you know, do the things that you want to do. So from early age, you know, the exposure to that community changed my life. I mean, I was just so inspired and I was ready to write a book <laughs> at 12 with my dad. Awesome. And like all into it. <laughs> we were going to do this, like all this whole interview thing. And and so it was... It That's was, adorable. Yeah, it was really fun and never happened, but maybe one day I'll, it's I'll, not I'll pick late. it up. <laughs> Your mom is... Also a psychologist. She's a PhD psychologist in the and clinical world. She was involved also in the criminal justice. Um, there was some overlap. Not so much. She was always, uh, she was actually a real pioneer in the space of women in depression. Oh, okay. Yes. So she wrote a book called When Feeling Bad is Good in like 92 or something. And like it blew up and she was on Oprah. And yeah, wow. it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was like, really cool. was like a star in the 90s almost of the psychology world. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh my gosh. Uh, so Growing and, up with two psychologists. Yeah, two <laughs> dinners were very fascinating. <laughs> there was a lot of, how do you feel? And me going, I don't know. I don't care. Oh, I wonder if that's why you're so positive. <laughs> it definitely helped. You a lot of emotional regulation as oh a child. Oh my God, you have no idea. As I look back now, I'm like, well, that was actually really useful, but God, I hated it. <laughs> when I was 13. But yeah, so over that time, I went to undergrad in California. And then my junior year, I started to work at a drug rehabilitation center in South Central called the Amity Foundation, which is an amazing facility, one of the landmark facilities in the States. Um, and was teaching some programming work, like some classes in health and loved it. But also after I graduated, I worked there and I was just so discouraged by the system of this incredible facility that was truly helping change lives, yet 80% of the conversations were about how are we going to fund this and how are we going to get money for that. Yeah. And the whole it's nonprofit hard. space, I, I I hate that word, nonprofit. I think it's a loan. It just literally 
undermines what these incredible organizations are doing by saying non-profit because ultimately you can create revenue streams. You can make money. That money has to be reinvested into the program. But there are ways to be creative and, and integrate entrepreneurship and all that stuff. So. I'm finding, too, when I tell people that Agro First is a nonprofit, I immediately get dismissed. Totally. It's so frustrating. Like we're not legitimate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really frustrating. Baseline, like, oh, you're nonprofit. Okay. So then it becomes this charity. But it's not charity. That's – can I curse here? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's bullshit. <laughs> uh, but, like, there's no – that's not charity. Like, like, you know, these are organizations doing great work that are – like helping people, employing people. I mean, they're companies. and Just the know. monies are being reinvested into the mission. Exactly. And so the baseline of like mission-driven companies, I mean, there's there's other words that I really hope that we sh- start shifting that rhetoric so that it's more empowering for these companies. But so my 22-year-old brain, I was like, you know what, this sucks. I'm going to go and make a lot of money on my own. And then I'm going to take that money and I'm going to do what I want with it, which is to really facilitate, you know, do these programs and, and help people that I care about. So I went to China. <laughs> right. I was going to travel the world. Uh, but Why I China? Up, I, there's a company there that offered me a small consulting gig for like a couple months. And it was in a city called Qingdao. I was there. Three months turned into three years. Started a, a consulting firm called Succeed Overseas. I was working with companies opening offices in America. We got acquired in 2014 by a company in Shanghai, which was awesome. Very small acquisition, <laughs> but it was you're, still at good. At the time, you're 20, 24. 25. You get acquired at 24? Yeah, 20, yeah, 25. Were yeah. you ever looking at your life like, this is so crazy and cool? Um, Kind of. A little bit. I think another really interesting topic is this that entrepreneurship creates is this idea of grandiosity and the this it could be a very blinding, I think, hurtful thing. This idea of I was you know like yeah like I've got a company I've got like I had all this stuff in the sense of like I was but it, there was no real depth to like succeed mm-hmm. overseas and that's why the acquisition was very small. But you know I I, I thought I knew so much more than I did mm-hmm. and it blinded me. Uh, to really, I think, build something good. But it was a great learning experience. And then I started another thing called Social Sway that was doing branding and digital development for nonprofits to bring back into the world that I really cared about. That failed pretty bad. It was like six months of just craziness. And that's really where I learned like, oh, shit, like the grandiosity of like, oh, I can do this. And it's the 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 work level to like vision level has to be balanced out i think mm-hmm. and i was not i was like vision like let's just do it and like blah 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 um and then i joined agility which is a great software development company and that's really where i learned how to i think be a real professional it's like 4 years the last 2 years i was coo and then i uh, just quit in august and i launched a new startup called earlybird that is uh helping it's a fintech mobile app focused on Parents opening custodial accounts and friends and family gifting money into the future for the kids. Can you walk us through what custodial accounts are? And I love this story behind Early Bird. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it all started with my beautiful baby niece, Izzy. Lots um, of pictures on Instagram oh my God, of Izzy. The best. <laughs> Literally, I was, so when she was born, I was always the baby in the family. So, head over heels, like, this is incredible. And I think many people can, you know, relate. And I found myself spending just hundreds of dollars on pretty ridiculous zero to three month outfits that just were used once and then literally just trash. And I was like, this sucks. So I wanted to give something much more valuable to the next generation. I think it's always something that we should be thinking about, right? How do we empower the next generation? Because the world right now is slightly bleak. I would say that there's some 
things that are definitely, you know, in 30, 40 years, well, we hope for the best, but it's looking rough. So how do we always think about how we can position the next generation for a better future? And so I was looking at it from a financial standpoint and basically started a fund for her in something called Robinhood, an investing app. And then my best friend had twins and it was the same thing. I'd spent $400 on stupid stuff and I was like, this is a real problem. And that's really, I guess, to tie it back into a lot of stuff that, you know, we're going to talk about is how do you find that problem, that problem mm, that you yeah. really relate to, that you love, that you like, that you experience in your own life? Like entrepreneurs will always tell you that, but if you don't actually feel it yourself and you don't experience it, it's really hard to like. Experience the true depth of that problem. Yes. What does that feel like? How do you know when you found it? It was just that I was just in it, right? I mean, I was – I. I I felt it with Izzy. I felt it with, you know, my my best friend's twins. I it was just around me and I and I and I and I I had felt it and then I created my own solution, right? Cuz a lot of people think, "Oh, you have a problem. Great, let's start a whole company and blah blah." No, I had no intention of starting a company. <laughs> I literally went into Robinhood, which is an existing app. It's a great investing app, and I started my own little fund called the Jordo Fun Fund, and I wrote up this whole thing, and I gave it to Josh and Elizabeth, my uh, brother and sister, and uh, you know it was just this cute gift, and I liked that solution. It felt good, but then the problem kept coming back, and that's when you really know the consistency of a problem, right? Something happens once, and you're like, oh, I want to start a whole company around it. You know, you got to make sure that that is it resonates with one you throughout your life, and two with the general public. You talked earlier a little bit about growing up in this home where there was so much opportunity and this bastion of tell us how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. How can we support you to be your best self mm -hmm. as a child? And then taking the risk and starting these companies and actually having failure. How do you bounce back? Because when we, our listeners, when we talk with them about making meaning of their story and finding that thing that sets them on fire and then trying to figure out how to give back, the risk feels yeah. so high, especially when you've come from a background where things have been so shitty. Totally. And maybe things have been fine, but stuff all happens to any of us. But mm -hmm. I, what I hear you saying is you are have so much courage to take the risk again and again and again. How do you do that? Yeah. So I think that there are a couple things. One is how you space out risk. <laughs> so in my story, uh, I was not going like back to back to back risk, 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 <laughs> right? I When I failed at Social Sway, I took some real time on my own to be like, what am I doing? Where am I at? It's almost like you fail, then you do that internal kind of reevaluation of who you are which, you know, can take someone a week or a month. What does that look like? Um, for me, it was really doing a deep dive into like trying to, again, get back to what I really care about, the things I care about from more of a macro level because as we get so focused in on like a career or, right. you know, these things, it's hard to break out. And uh, that's a lot of conversations with people that you care about, that you trust. Do you have a vision statement? Is that something that helps you or what has been your approach to sort of get to that point when you come back to like what's guiding you? Yeah, vision statement, not specifically. For me, the the things that really guide me and that I just keep on experiencing and keep on relearning the importance of is the network 
in my network of people. So your community. People, the community. Yeah, I guess network is a very professional term. But yes, community yeah. is 100%. It just, it's so impactful. And I see it time and time again. The process of that internal valuation was so much of talking to people that I care about that just reevaluating what, you know, they see from me and where I'm at and then getting their perspectives and getting into deep conversation and then having them help me also pull out of that failure, mm, right? That's such right. an important thing. And then this new thing I'm starting, I'm starting with somebody that is one of my best friends I met in China. This amazing guy is from Chicago, Caleb uh, Frankel. And we've built this together. And now that having that bond and that relationship and that support is just invaluable and so critical, I think, for everybody to be always looking for, right? As you meet people, you feel them out and then relationships are hard work. They are hard work. Really hard work. Yes, they are really, really, really hard work. Friendship breakups are hard work. There's so many nuances. I think losing that support is really hard. I know I'm going through a season of trying to learn what it means to have a healthy relationship with myself Mm -hmm. and also being able to rely on people in a healthy way Mm -hmm. that is not scary. I'm working with my therapist. This is something I say on the podcast last. I'm working through my therapist with my therapist Uh, on having like healthy balance where because I always think about this phrase. It's like, see me, but don't like, I want you to see me, but don't see me Mm. when you see me like, but then I I don't want you to see me. So Mm -hmm. like that push and pull, but you mentioned support and something we talked about a little bit yesterday. I know from your story is your dad passed away, like you said, two years ago. And at the moment, your mom is really struggling with the illness Mm -hmm. as well. And she's in a place right now where you and your brother are taking care of her. So the roles have really reversed for you. So when you think about support as someone who is taking care of their caretaker now, what has that been like for you? Yeah. So it's, yeah. So the last two years, two and a half years, definitely the whole thing. I mean, my family was never a very uh, traditional family in any way. A fun side story was that my mom and dad got married before my brother was born. We were married for like 18 years, then just weren't able to continue and divorced. And then about eight years later, I came back home from China and I was out with my mom. We're out to dinner hanging out and my mom was dating a lot of different people. And she's like, yeah, you know, I've got a new boyfriend. I'm like, oh, that's awesome, mom. Who is it? She's like, uh, your dad. (laughs) I was like, what? What are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, we are. We're starting to date again. (laughs) Eight years later. And they like were totally like, you know, dad was living in California, mom in New York. And then they found, like, they rekindled this relationship. And they ended up moving back in together. And until my dad died, they uh, they were together. So it's a very sweet kind of interesting take on relationships. Yeah. Now sometimes time can heal and help. But then, yes, unfortunately, my father uh, passed away. And that was an interesting experience because it was really just overnight. He had a hip replacement. And uh, wow. the next day he was okay. And they were, like, fixing it up a little bit. But then uh, they moved his hip around a little and he got a blood clot. And uh, it was like a five-hour, just very intense um, and emotional, of course, experience. Um, yeah. And then he passed away. And then my mom, last Thanksgiving, woke up one morning and uh, had a stroke that was like a really minor stroke in her mm-hmm. thalamus. Physically totally fine, but washed her memory, basically. Wow. So short-term memory completely gone and long-term is very scrambled. So. 
It was so it was just like one one day, and then yeah, one she I was different. Literally woke up in the morning. Yeah, it was overnight, and she woke up, and she was just yeah, pretty much gone. And so there's a lot of stuff to unpack. <laughs> yeah, with that, with the mom thing, I think one of the really interesting things is the for I, I assume a lot of listeners that have maybe experienced this, or you know that this I hope doesn't happen, but at some point will, right? I mean, everyone is going to deal with these things in some way. Yeah. No one gets out of this alive. That's what my dad always said. No one gets really, out of this alive. Did he say that when you were like 10 and yeah. wanting to write the book? And then when <laughs> no you one were gets 13. out of this alive. <laughs> Goodness. I was like, wow, heavy dad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like 12 years old. This din- these dinner parties. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird time. <laughs> wow. Heavy dose of reality. <laughs> 100%. So, <laughs> he, so when that happened with my mom, though, it's that real intensity of zero to 100, which we rarely right. experience in life, right? It's like from zero where she was literally fine the day before to like, holy shit, we need to get 24-7 care and like everything is now And that's changed. almost back to back because it's one year later. Your dad passed and then one yeah. year later this happened with your mom. Yeah, it was two, it was two years between, but yeah. Very condensed and Thanksgiving, yeah, Thanksgiving wasn't the best time for us the last couple of years, but this Thanksgiving was great. So we're back on track. <laughs> Rewriting these new narratives. Yeah. But, oh my gosh. And yeah. at the same time, your companies are kind of taking off with it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely a intense, a lot, you know, happening. And so again, it goes back to the, the partnerships and relationships. Thank God I have my brother uh, who's three years older and we just really were able to my sister actually always talks about something called that teaming. How do you team with people really well, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone's different. Everyone has different needs and different approaches to to problems and, and, and issues. How do you really figure out how to work with someone, team with someone? So that's in relationships, your significant other, right? How do you find that team mentality where you're really there for each other and you know how to like give each other space, let someone lead when it's best for them to lead, and then you can step in, fall back on someone. And so Josh and I really, you know, we had a great relationship before, but this really ramped everything up because we had to rely on each other and trust each other. And uh, we were able to, and we ended up finding a great senior home for her after the holidays in uh, California. And she's there now, and she actually, for our perspective, really seems happy. How is it for you to visit her with these accomplishments, I guess, where do you share these accomplishments now? Has that shifted for you? In a sense of accomplishment? I think something I've struggled with, and I don't know if anyone else listening has struggled with this, this kind of was a narrative that I'm working through with therapy, mm-hmm. which is that when my grandfather passed, when I was growing up with him, he anything I did, like I was a straight-A student, I was on almost every curricular activity on SGA – I mean, I just whatever checkbox you could do, I was checking it so that because he was an alcoholic, he was very emotionally abusive, he was physically abusive. So when I would come home, Mm -hmm. it was never enough. Like he would rip up my homework, he would humiliate me. So accomplishing things got warped and they started to feel bad. Mm -hmm. So when I would accomplish something, it was like to celebrate it meant that it felt really bad. So going Mm. into university, like I finished school as fast as I could. And then I was checking off all these other boxes, going to certain universities. And it was just, I became that person that was like success equals X, Y, Z. I'm not a success unless I do this. It was like, I didn't have that landing place to have that affirmation Mm. to be like, you're, 
you did well yeah. or you're you're doing well outside of your accomplishments. So yeah. something that came to mind as I guess a personal question that I had and maybe someone like I said listening might have this is you are so successful and you have this family dynamic right now where you have such amazing support from your siblings but your kind of guiding lights in terms of like who raised you that has shifted a lot Mm. how are you able to decouple your identity from your success and really rest in who you are Mm. wow (laughs) that is a great question so when i think i mean over the years right i think that was a, a process that actually happened um more subconsciously in the sense of as I got older and started to see that, you know, my parents were getting older and that there was, like, relying on their recognition. I guess I never really had that from my mom. It was more my dad that I really relied mm-hmm. on for, like, like the the real acknowledgement of what I was doing. And, you know, I was looking to him to give me those somewhat praise of – but. You know, he was hard in the sense, like, you know, I had to really do something good to, like, get that. And, and you're going to die eventually. What did he say? Uh, no one gets out of this alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one gets out of this alive. And so and, – and I and I never really started to – because, you know, if you looked at me at 18 years old, I was nothing like, you know, like, let's, like, work and do all this stuff. I was a total shit show and, you know, just partying and having fun. And, and so, unfortunately, that's, you know, my dad – that he saw a lot of that person. And then over the years, of course, as I evolved as a professional – I got to share a lot with that with him, which is how we started Recovery Through Entrepreneurship um, five years ago. And so when he died, it was so overnight. It was so, you know, overnight that uh, it was this – I mean, again, I people always look at me and they go, you know, you, why aren't – like, you should be – people assume I should be more upset and, like, emotional and, like, distraught than I was and am. And I really struggle with that because when I really look back – I'm so fixated on this sense of gratitude, gratitude, Mm -hmm. gratitude, gratitude, that I couldn't be more grateful for what I had with my dad, the life I had. I mean, I was 28 when he died. Like, that's extremely lucky, you know, for a lot of people and a lot of – and this is, again, how I cope. Everyone else has different ways. But, like, when I look at it in perspective, like, I feel just so grateful for what I had and the time I had. And, like, looking back and just really – loving that and appreciating that and feeling good about it rather than because in my eyes it was always there's two roads right one is i can either be really upset and crying and disconnected and 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 depressed about this all or i have the other roads my choice it really is my choice and again this is for me personally it's extreme you know the it's a complicated in my own head but it's complicated for everyone in different ways so i don't want to like undermine the the fork in the road and the complication there but for me, it was like I just kept seeing like the road of being grateful and, and, and feeling that gratitude is so – it just benefited me so much more and, and made me feel better. And so I really instilled that. Then when my mom happened, it's it's hard – of course, it's extremely hard to see her. You know, I was just there yesterday uh, and, you know, she's really deteriorating and, you mm-hmm. know, it's just part of – but again, it is part of life and – I keep going back to thinking, like, there's nothing I can do about yeah. it, right? Except try my best to focus on being positive and, and smiling when I'm with her and, you know, just making light of, you know, the situations that are happening and some, to make everyone else feel comfortable. And these are coping mechanisms that I've built in 
that I've found to be helpful, right? And they're different for everyone, but I guess that's kind of how I've been dealing with it. You just said something. You said, I have just focused on being positive. And being positive is remarkable. Your ability to do that is astounding. How do you do that? Is it just that you are so intentional about it? Yes, 100%. So I was not this way always. And my mom actually was, for all she was, she was an extremely difficult person and extremely reactive, extremely aggressive, and lived in this victimhood world and just showed all the time growing up. Um, and, of course, it came from extremely difficult life, you know. I mean, uh, brother and father died in a car crash when she was 14 and came from very little. And, you know, she really had the struggle, so this was part of her life. Um, but as I grew up, I watched it, and I was just it, – I hated it. This negativity, everything, being so reactive and getting so upset at things. And, and of course, it rubbed off on me. But as I got older through high school – I just kept seeing how much I hated it. And so when I went to college, I went across the country from New York to California. And I was, I never forget, I was so intentional. I was like, when I start my first day in college, I'm going to be a different human. And I'm going to do everything I can to be the opposite of how my mom like reacted to things. And I went a little overboard. <laughs> I, the first day of school, I'll never forget. Everyone was like moving in. And, and I would like put myself in my room and I would just went up to everyone. I was like, oh, do you need help? Do you need help? Like, Picking people's stuff up, and they're like, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> like, what the? Hell? Like, I was like, "Do you work for the college?" <laughs> what are you? You're freaking me out. <laughs> I was like, "No, no, no, it's cool. Like, I need to help because I because one of my role models, and again, really important, I think, to have role models and people that you can look up to. Uh, this guy Casey Barbero, who's my god brother, and he is just this incredible dude, trauma surgeon, and he always, always was the most positive guy in the room, but he always would go that extra step for somebody, no matter what it is, just always gave that extra helping hand. And I saw that how it made him feel and how happy he was. And so, yeah, I was extremely intentional for the, and training myself uh, all through college. I wasn't great, but as I got into more of the flow of things, it, you can train your brain to really react that way, at least I believe. Talk to me about training that brain yeah does that mean like moment by moment just reinforcing i'm gonna look on the positive side like what is the narrative you tell yourself yeah i think it's being really uh, conscious of it so like for example yesterday i took a five-hour flight from la to back to new york and it was i find moments like that always great to like check myself right how am i feeling how am i act because again everyone will say so many people come to me and say well you're just faking it and Maybe. I don't know. I, I I don't think so. I genuinely don't feel that way because I, I, I find myself where I'm checking myself and I say, how do I actually feel, Jordan? Like, am I, am I overdoing it right now? Am I, am I faking how I'm feeling? But over the years, I've spent so much time intentionally being positive and thinking about the good things, waking up, recognizing how lucky I feel, people around me being proactive and, you know, just small things, healthy, you know, I, I, I think physical fitness is a big thing. I love going to the gym, you know, staying healthy. I don't eat that healthy, but I, I, am, I love the idea of focusing on those things because they make you feel better. And whatever makes you feel better, you should be doing, <laughs> right? I mean, that's such a f fundamental concept that if something doesn't make you feel good, try to figure out ways to wean it out of your life. So, 
you can really focus on the things that do and ultimately be positive. I can see how that really ties together with your work with recovery through entrepreneurship. I work with trauma populations, but other psychological trauma populations. Obviously, addiction is like kind of goes hand in hand when we talk about PTSD, Mm -hmm. recovering from any sort of abuse. And one time somebody said that when you're working with people in recovery, you almost have to replace the thing that they're coping with, Mm -hmm. with something else. And it to try and have that be something positive, that that time of exchange is a really touch-and-go time. But someone also said, I think it was Dr. Drew, he said that people who have addictions, they're the, one of the most resilient people because they're able to have found something that helps them cope. It's just how can we reorient them to make that thing that is helping them cope kind of like a motivator mm-hmm. because they have this capacity that's beyond us, which I thought was like, so fascinating. Tell us a little bit about what recovery through entrepreneurship does. What I find so amazing is how this common thread runs through your life of really refocusing that intentionality. I think it's so exciting and really, really amazing. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's really well said. So the so Recovery the Entrepreneurship is a nonprofit that focuses on teaching digital literacy. So how do you really leverage the current world in computers, which we believe is for the first time in human life, there's a equal playing field for knowledge gain, which is unheard of, right? If you really wanted to, you could truly learn anything you wanted on the computer period. And you just have to know where to look and how to find it. One of the facts that I thought was really fascinating in one of the videos on the website, um, recoverythroughentrepreneurship.org, I think, is that a lot of people who come through this program have never actually used a computer. Yeah. I think that is going to be one of the biggest challenges of our future generation is the, the digital spectrum of literacy. So like the can and cannots of computers, right? I mean, it's Every, I mean, looking around, we have a phone, a TV, computer. I mean, it's everywhere. If you don't know how to use these tools, these are the modern tools of of hammers and 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 whatever back in the middle age, the medieval times, <laughs> right? Like these are like this is what you use now. And so it's how do we make sure that people don't fall behind on these kind of tools, and we empower them to to learn and and expose them to the right things to find, right? Because what we found is actually they do know how to, you know most people know how to use computers it's a very intuitive concept especially in today's world but what do you do you go instantly to facebook.com and the amount of hours and time i've seen mm, a so lot of true. the population that we work with on facebook is just a travesty cuz you know i mean it's depressing it's yeah and they're like scrolling through aimlessly and finding things that they and it's honestly it's it's really bad for the recovery process mm, because you're seeing yeah. a lot of your old world and wow, you know you're seeing right. a lot of this space that you're really trying to remove yourself out of. It's it's really a bad cycle, actually. And so our whole thing is, how do we get people inspired and excited about the power of a computer and what you can do and learn and gain and, and um, all the tools you can leverage? But the way that we see it is it's kind of like a car, right? You have the vehicle is the computer, the actual vehicle, but the driver is what we call the entrepreneurial mentality. So we're also teaching entrepreneurship as a skill, not as a start your own company. Um, That was the original idea, but entrepreneurship is the top of the mountain, right? It's extremely hard to get to, even if you have all the resources and all the power and all the networking connections. um, It's still extremely, extremely hard to do. What we found out is it actually hurts people because everyone goes, yeah, I want to be my own boss. Yeah, for sure. Like it's the easiest thing, but 
know, what we had to do is really get down to the base of the mountain, which is career empowerment. We found that that is such an important concept, right? How do you shift from that mentality of a job to a career that you're really focused in and you're and you're and you're bought in and you're excited by it, right? When I work, I don't feel like I'm working. Like I never, I never feel like I'm working, which is such a luxury. But I'm really passionate about what I'm doing and I'm excited about it. So I enjoy the process and. How do we help find that? And we believe through this idea of this entrepreneur mentality, right? Which is the idea of finding problems you care about, then building solutions or thinking through solutions, and then building projects. And projects can be super small. So we look at, you know, you don't have to be big companies. You don't have to do all that. But if you build small pro- projects, then you have to do something called test and validate, that it's a good idea, that it's helping something or someone or solving the problem. And then if you start seeing some traction, you can get, you know, you can actually start something that can all be done simultaneously as you like have a job and you're making, you know, you're still supporting yourself financially. So some of the populations you work with, you're really passionate about criminal justice reform. So you're in prisons. I saw some domestic violence organizations yeah. as well. Yeah. So we work with a couple organizations in New York. Uh, mostly these are things called therapeutic communities. So they're like post-prison residential facilities, six months to a year. I've worked with male facilities, all male, all female, mixed population, and uh, community uh, centers. One of the pitches that I saw almost consistently were that people were help, trying to think through how to solve the situation that they came out of. Yes. Social entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Something that we love, that we that we found to be so impactful because everyone that comes out of these situations, it's so beautiful to see how badly they want to, of course, help the next generation not go through the same problems. And entrepreneurship is a really cool thing in the sense that that's a problem. What you went through in different areas of that, you know, whether it's having trouble being a parent or or, or, or if it's, you know, domestic violence or uh, if it's Ill- literally being illiterate, schooling, I mean, there was uh, weight PTSD, yeah, weight PTSD. loss. Uh, I mean, there's just all these beautiful, amazing problems that people experience that I call them beautiful because when they're recognizing them and they feel empowered by it, it's they amazing. can actually build solutions to, to help that. And again, it's I always scale, like, Scale is a very daunting thing, right? To start a company is a crazy idea. Yeah. And that's way out of the – like we should – no one should even be thinking about that. These are small little things where you can like, you know, start small projects where maybe you go into one of these facilities that I'd be happy to share with. And like, you know, you can do like a small workshop, right? You do a one-hour – say you're a great writer. You do a one-hour writing workshop with some of these women at the facility. They would love that. You see, you get response. You learn from it. Maybe you do another. Maybe you never do one again, right? But that ability to think through smaller, digestible steps forward rather than that huge scale of like, oh, my God, we have to like register a company and do all this stuff and make money. Like That just gets me thinking about what you said earlier about like exposure. So sometimes when, you know, having worked in human rights for a long time, sometimes when I speak to audiences, people will say, but, but I don't even know how to help this thing. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a doctor. But it's like you've already been exposed to this issue. Mm-hmm. So actually you have exposure and you have knowledge. You have real world knowledge for this thing that you're passionate about. So that start there. And like you're saying, it doesn't have to be big, but it can be small steps often thinking through like what could have helped you even small yes. little things you had mentioned someone that really made an impact on you was the story of david can yes. you tell us a little bit about david definitely 
quickly before that too, one of the most important things ever with this process is always, always sharing your ideas. There's this mm, crazy yeah. idea in entrepreneurship that, you know, you got to keep your ideas close to your chest so that no one steals them. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. If you're not constantly sharing your ideas and getting feedback and talking it through, one, you'll never find the network you can build it with. And two, the idea will never evolve into something that will be real. And an idea is worthless unless it's actually taken action on. So one huge piece of advice is just if you have any ideas, share it, talk about it, sit down with people and really, you know, grow it because that's the only way to do it. So yeah. I hate the idea when people say, I, I can't tell you what it is. I, good, good idea I have is. Like, what? And you're never going to do anything. Like, get away from it. It sounds like that also comes back to what you were saying earlier, community and also trusting yourself, I think. Totally. Trusting that you know the subject area. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So Dave is this awesome, awesome man that I met at – we were working with a group called Samaritan Village. That's one of the biggest – one, it's a massive program, does tons of different things, but, you know, drug rehabilitation is an area that they focus on, a lot of stuff in, like, criminal justice reform. And so they uh, opened up a community center, and we were teaching every Saturday. And two years ago, I guess now, I met him, you know, 12 to 3, three-hour session, and this guy came in, and, you know, he's, I think, like, 32 at the time. Actually, yeah, he's just turned 34. And he came in and was just, like, so focused. I had not seen kind of that level of focus from a lot of people because, you know, they're always kind of doubting me and what I'm teaching. But as things move forward, they get excited by it. But he was just like in it. And so the the three modules that we look at are learn, network, build. Those are the three core steps for any successful project. Learn, spend a lot of time understanding what you're actually working on, gain the knowledge, network, Find people that are also in that space that you can work with, that you can partner with, that you can share ideas with, and then build. Then you actually are ready to go into it and actually design and build out what you want to do. So learn. We were looking at uh, some websites like Coursera. That's a really great online learning tool that I'm sure you guys can put in. Coursera. There's Khan Academy. That's great, right, for a lot of more specific subjects. You could even, you know, there's Code Academy. You can literally, in Code Academy, you can learn how to code in six months for free. You could literally wow. become an engineer. It's incredible. And they do it really fun and they gamify it. It's great. Um, so we showed him all these tools. And Coursera, he got really into it. And he was like, you know, he's a, he comes from a world of fashion. And so he took this whole, like, fashion course. Two months, killed it. Did so well that they, Coursera reached out to him and said, hey, do you want to be a mentor for the next class? Wow, that's amazing. And he was like, yeah, of course. And, you know, I was helping him through this whole process. And then we were looking at more in a, like a skill-based idea. What could you focus on that we could focus on your career? The idea of digital marketing came up, focusing in on that. Coursera offers incredible digital marketing courses. These are sponsored by real colleges like Duke University, Stanford. And so he took a three-month Coursera digital marketing course that we sponsored and he just crushed it. I mean, you know, it, you, it was really bought in and impressed me, right? I mean, this is part of that network. You never know who you're going to meet and what they can do for you. And so I looked at him and I was like, this guy's real talent and this is incredible. So I was working at Agility.io, the software development company. We were just exploring actually building out a digital marketing post-product uh, service offering. And I was like, hey, do you want to, you know, we're, I think we're going to create an internship for three months unpaid. You know, do you want to come in? And he was like, yeah, I would love that. So he was coming in four days a week, I think even five days a week, killed it, impressed all of us and the 
the actual owner of the company, this guy Chuck, so much that Chuck started a training course in Indianapolis called Kenzie Academy and said, hey, we're launching a digital marketing thing. Six months, we'll pay for you to go out there and, and do this officially. So he goes out there, six months in Indianapolis, learns everything, like real, like, you know, with real professionals all around and really gained that knowledge base. And then once he graduated, we offered him a full-time job. And so now he's a digital marketing associate at Agility IO. He's been there for about eight months now and just crushing it. Wow. So two years from, or even just a year, let's say, he was basically starting a you know fifty thousand dollar a year job and as a digital marketing associate. Where um where did you meet him? Which program? Uh, this was at Samaritan Village, right, um, right, at the community center in Jamaica Queens. Wow. Yeah, and so he was at uh, this re- uh, he was at one of the centers, uh, living in the rest facility. Of that, yeah, yeah, rehabilitation yeah. facility, living in one of the centers, and been there for like six months, seven months, really wanting to do something but not knowing how and where. So again, it goes back to exposure, right? Really. Yeah. He came into that class. He took the step forward. No idea what he was going to get. Two years later, look where he is, right? You know, his story is pretty intense and hard, and he's been through the ringer of almost everything. Still having that hope. And the I think there's a power of, when I look at Dave, there's a power of knowledge that he still knows that he's worth, that he has that, that he could do something. Like, he never lost mm. that. Even though he got down to the bottom of the bottom, you know, he's still like, he knew he knows he's smart and he knows he's capable. It's just like he had to take that step forwards. And I I think luck is absolutely a process of that is a that's a that's a variable like idea, right? Like if you put in enough luck, your luck will always increase, right? It's not just like things get lucky. And yeah, he's now crushing it. And you know, he's actually helping out with early bird too. We're subcontracting him on some stuff. That is so amazing. Yeah, he's the best. That is so amazing. And what I'm really taking away from your story, too, is that people can change. You know, your story isn't over. Hmm. And 100%. also what I love is how, I guess, intentional but didactful you are about it. We're not just saying, oh, you can change and you can have purpose. You're saying, like, here's how build your community, have exposure, talk to people. I mean, if you're thinking, if people are out there listening and thinking, I'm not capable, I don't have the worth, this is how you have the worth here, very clear, clear steps on totally. how to do it. Yes, you know, and I mean, anyone listening to, you know, reach out to me. I mean, I'd be happy to, you know, send me an email like uh, com. I mean, we're like this process. I mean, it's it, it requires being bold. I think you said that at the way beginning, right? There is a level of being bold, like of step taking that step in and reaching out to that person. And it's, it is awkward. I don't mean to make it sound easy at all. It's like I feel so uncomfortable and awkward all the time. But, you know, I force myself to do these things because 99% of the time, if you do it, the outcome, something comes from it, something positive, something good. You go to that coffee with someone that you're just so nervous to do. You 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 make that phone call. You send that text. You 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 take the step forward. I promise, ninety nine percent of the time, something good comes of it. You don't know, or maybe it's not immediate, but it's always better than not. Is my kind of take on life. Wow. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Jordan. You are a true gift, a true blessing. I think a lot of people might take you up on that offer. I know that I'm always messaging you for encouragement, and I'm so grateful for all that you do for so many people. I'm really excited to watch you soar. I think you're such a gift. Thank you. I think you're amazing, too. I'm so excited to see what's going to happen. 
<laughs> it's good stuff. All good stuff coming. <laughs> I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.allgofirst.com. We'll see you next time.